Andreas Wimmer is the Lieber Professor of Sociology and Political Philosophy at Columbia University. Andreas is the author of many books, both in English and in German, including Ethnic Boundary Making, a book that examines how ethnic and racial groups emerge in societies. He's also the author of Ways of War, which traces the development of the nation state and its proliferation internationally, and nation building, why some countries come together while others fall apart. I invited Andreas to the Dean's Table to talk about his work on the timely topic of nationalism, reflect on his turn from anthropology to sociology, and to give us some insight into his decision to use a wide range of methodological tools to make sense of nationalism, war, and ethnicity. Welcome to the Dean's Table, Andreas. Thank you, Fred. So let's begin at the, the beginning. Not quite the beginning, but um, your journey as a political sociologist appears to have had some twists and turns. Let's start with your experience with growing up in Switzerland, a nation many consider to be homogenous and historically devoid of nationalism. For instance, Switzerland, as you know, is known famously for its neutrality during World War II as not succumbing to the type of nationalism that evolved in Germany. How did growing up in Switzerland influence your insights, if at all, on nationalism and the role that ethnicity plays in societies? Yeah, I think it has deeply influenced me uh, in the way that how I think about these topics. You know, in a way, Switzerland is an exceptional case. It has uh, three major language groups, mm -hmm. uh, German speakers, French speakers, Italian speakers, and there has never been a secessionist movement among these different groups. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you could say that the language issue is almost not politicized. There's not a single party mm -hmm. speaking for the French speakers, for example, like the Parti Québécois in Canada uh, or a Scottish party in, uh, in the UK. And so it's a case where ethnic divides have never really become uh, politicized. Mm -hmm. And so growing up, I kind of, and then the Yugoslav wars came and all of that. So I mm -hmm. kind of always wondered, why don't people just do it the Swiss way? And <laughs> why is there so much conflict along racial, ethnic, and so on divides around the world? And how can we explain why in some countries it is much more pronounced and mm -hmm. has turned violent, while in other countries such as Switzerland, but also uh, there's a range of other ones, India, mm -hmm. uh, it has remained relatively peaceful. Mm -hmm. One of the answers that were kind of obvious when you grew up in Switzerland is that power sharing mm -hmm. and integration of various groups into national level power structures is, is mm -hmm. key mm -hmm. for depoliticizing uh, linguistic or racial or religious divides. Mm -hmm and for maintaining peace. Right, right. It's very interesting, and so um, we'll return to Switzerland, I think. But after high school, you didn't go directly into college. You, you eventually went to the University of Zurich, but you worked as a dock hand on the Mediterranean because, as you once said, you wanted to live a bohemian life. Um, what was that experience like? How did you know that? <laughs> well, we have our ways. I see. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's my CV. Uh, yeah, so I went on a sailing boat uh, mm -hmm. with a friend of mine. We hired ourselves out mm -hmm. and traveled around the Western Mediterranean. And I had this kind of 
insurrectional anti-bourgeois idea mm. that this would be my life and that I would just continue travel around the world. So I was always very interested in traveling and speaking other languages, you mm-hmm. know, hanging out with people from mm-hmm. different places and so on. And so I did this for about nine months. Oh, nine months. And not a year. Not a, not a full years. year. Yeah. 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 And then I realized that this was a little bit too romantic, maybe. <laughs> and, right. And unstable. I ended up on a boat that was owned by a very wealthy British family. Mm-hmm. And so we were, you know, the decks hands on this boat, and mm-hmm. it was extraordinarily hierarchical. Mm-hmm. A kind of, a, we were not servants. There were other people who were the servants, but right. we were clearly in the lower caste, uh, uh-huh. as it were, in this boat. And I kind of disliked that. And uh-huh. uh, so I thought, maybe I don't want to spend my life like that uh, right. on rich people's sailing boats. And right. so I returned back and I thought anthropology is actually right. a good compromise <laughs> right. between you know having a more traditional kind of career uh-huh. and the romantic idea of traveling the world. So I choose anthropology mm-hmm. in a not very well-informed way, I must say, mm-hmm. because it seemed to kind of accommodate my bohemian instincts the best. Right. So, but it seems like you developed some keen observations, some thick descriptions, um, as anthropologists like to say, about those experiences you had on the Mediterranean in those nine months. And so, is that, I guess you talked about a little bit a, a moment ago, did that get you interested in studying anthropology? Yes, it kind of did, because in the different ports where we were, we were stuck in one port in Panama de Mallorca for three months, mm. and I hung out just in this harbor area. It was kind of a, you know, harbor areas are very often rather rough. Mm-hmm. And so we hung out in these bars uh, with sailors mm-hmm. and a little bit of the local underworld. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just found all of this very interesting, and I found the people very interesting. Right. And anthropology kind of allows you to go to places mm-hmm. that are uh, very different from the ones that you grew up with, and it allows you to kind of indulge in your curiosity mm-hmm. about how other people think and live, and so that kind of seemed to be an appropriate and interesting thing for me to study. Right. So you received your PhD at the University of Zurich. Yes. Um, what did you do your dissertation on? My was it dis- on the Mediterranean? No, my meditation, my dissertation was on Mexico and Guatemala. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I did field work there uh, in the mid-80s. Mm-hmm. I went to a very small uh, rural community somewhere in the Sierra, um, far away from roads and mm-hmm. electricity and these kinds of things. And... This tells you something about the quality of my PhD education. Only when I came back, I realized there's a whole literature on these kind of villages. <laughs> okay. And so you didn't realize that before not you? Not really. Right. Um, our training was really mm-hmm. very bad compared mm-hmm. to what you get in mm-hmm. a top program here in the mm-hmm. U.S. Mm-hmm. And so then I didn't find it very interesting to write yet another book on yet another village. Mm-hmm. And so my dissertation then was trying to comparatively make sense why certain of these indigenous communities had developed in a historically in a certain direction, mm-hmm. developed certain kinds of cultural patterns and political mm-hmm. structures, 
and not others. So I became a kind of a comparative historical mm -hmm. sociologist, political sociologist, mm -hmm. although I had never heard about such a thing, such a subdiscipline existing. Mm -hmm. But my dissertation is not a traditional anthropological one. It's not based on my fieldwork. Oh, it's not. I only mm. wrote one or two articles on, on the fieldwork, but it's basically based on the a comparative evaluation of all these already existing mm -hmm. monographies and historical analyses. Okay. So that's, that's interesting. Uh, so you started in anthropology and you ended up as a comparative historical yeah. sociologist. Kind um, of, yeah. Um, so before we get to that, um, how did you switch to the topic of nationalism as an area of study? It is loosely connected to my experience in Mexico. Mm -hmm. So when I arrived there, I also took master classes at the Escuela Nacional de Antropología y Historia in Mexico City, and that was hardcore Marxism. Mm -hmm. Although it was an anthropology program, all they did was Marxism. And But once I went out into the field, there were these other anthropologists whom I met who were aligned with the emerging mm -hmm. indigenous movements of Mexico. And these indigenous movements um, were very strong, uh, led by indigenous intellectuals in mm -hmm. the state where I studied Oaxaca. And they had a kind of a, you could say, a nationalist program, mm -hmm. an indigenous nationalist program. Mm -hmm. And the anthropologists supporting them were basically, you know, giving the intellectual um, tools for them mm -hmm. to develop this kind of program. So I became interested also it wasn't in my dissertation, or is it my dissertation? Maybe I forgot. Mm -hmm. So I became interested also in these movements and how they emerged and so on. And then from there, I mean, the topic of nationalism, there's a large literature on that in right. sociology, and I just got into that. And then mm -hmm. all, as I said before, the Yugoslav wars happened and all kinds of other mm -hmm. conflicts along nationalist lines in mm -hmm. the former Soviet Union. So it just became a topic that a lot of people turned to, and so mm -hmm. so did I. So um, you have disciplinary interest in both anthropology and sociology. So, you know, you have a wide-ranging interest. And another thing I was fascinated by your work is you used various methodological tools. In your research on nationalism, war, and ethnicity, uh, you've used a wide toolbox of quantitative methods like uh, survey research and qualitative methods like uh, ethnography. And you're even, to my surprise, incorporated mathematical modeling or what's called as formal modeling into some of your work. Most social scientists employ one or the other. Rarely do they incorporate both quantitative and qualitative methods. Why do you feel that that's important in, well, in, your, in your body of work or how you pursue your research questions? I like to use a, a kind of a, a tunnel metaphor here. You know, there's a, mm -hmm. a mountain, and we try to understand what's underneath it, what's its structure, what it is made of, what are the sediments that make up a mountain. Mm -hmm. And if you drill one tunnel at a certain height of the mountain, you get a certain impression of what the underlying structure would look like. If you dig in a tunnel at a different height or from a different direction, you will get a different picture. Mm -hmm. And I think digging several tunnels into the same mountains is the way to go if you really want to understand the underlying structure. Mm -hmm. And so combining different methods, triangulating, as mm -hmm. it's called mm -hmm. in, in the more technical language, 
is really important to get a full picture of um, of the phenomena that we're interested in. And I think, you know, a lot of people overestimate, I think, how difficult it is to do things differently. Right. Of course, you will never become a super professional expert in a certain mm-hmm. method if you shift around methods. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can become proficient enough so that, you know, it gets published into good journals and so on. Yeah. It's relatively easy to do. And actually, you know, I learned a lot from my grad students. I learned uh-huh. statistical te- techniques from a grad right. student who is now a professor at uh, political science in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just takes a couple of years, but it's actually really doable. So I think methodological versatility uh-huh. is something that should also be part of our training program. And oh. we do that a little more in sociology than right. in political science. But yeah. I think um, the combination between qualitative insights, mm-hmm. actually know how things work mm-hmm. uh, in historical reality and in the microprocesses of events and so on, uh-huh. and to combine that with large-scale statistical analysis of many cases, I think mm-hmm. it just uh, produces a much richer and denser kind of image of what's going on. Yeah, I think it does, and I, I, I wish for more. Um, work like that, that that can embrace those different methodologies. And it's amazing that you have developed all these competencies and wide varying methods. So great work. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, so let's switch a little bit specifically to the arguments you've made in your different books. So tell us about your book, Ways of War, Nationalism, yeah. State Formation, and Ethnic Exclusion in the Modern World. Tell our listeners, what what's that book about? So this book is about how the ideology of nationalism, which is Mm -hmm. the idea that people should be governed by people who are like them, that like should rule over like, Mm -hmm. um, how this ideology has spread and how it has transformed the political order of the world from a world of empires and dynastic states Mm -hmm. to a world of nation states, Mm -hmm. and then how this process is associated with conflict and war, why it and how it is a, uh, as it were, a conflictual, bloody process. Mm. And so one of the main arguments is that once you have uh, the principle of like over like established, and a lot of people believe in it, which wasn't the case in empires, for example, where Mm -hmm. it was totally fine that a French-speaking nobility would rule over Spanish-speaking or German-speaking or whatever mm-hmm. subjects. Mm-hmm. So once you have that introduced, then ethnic or racial inequality, where uh, certain groups are not represented in government, mm-hmm. they're ruled by others, mm-hmm. uh, becomes kind of very problematic mm-hmm. and becomes illegitimate in mm-hmm. the eyes of the people. Mm-hmm. And if this is not remedied, if you don't have some kind of political integration and inclusion, mm-hmm. then wars are very likely to erupt. Mm. And so most of the civil wars that are fought in the contemporary world, meaning since the Second World War, right. have to do with these kind of ethno-political uh, exclusion. And there are struggles against such ethno-political exclusion. So that's one of the main okay. take-homes of that book. So do you build on those arguments in, in the, your your other book, um, Nation Building, Why Some Countries Come Together and Why Others Fail? 
yeah. similar arguments? Well, the big question then is why do some countries have a structure of power where um, large groups are excluded from power and are represented mm-hmm. in national level government and why other countries don't have that? And that explains then why the transition to the modern nation state is mm-hmm. conflict prone in some cases, but not in others. And we already talked a little bit about Switzerland. Right. And Switzerland is a case where obviously th- this hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was no civil war along uh, linguistic lines ever. Mm-hmm. And so the book then tries to understand why ruling coalitions are more inclusionary mm-hmm. in some countries than in others. And the answer is that it has to do with slow-moving factors of political development mm-hmm. that pull a country together in the sense of that generate incentives for rulers to build multi-ethnic, multi-racial, more inclusionary coalitions. Mm-hmm. And these three factors, one, are the early development of civil society organizations, which provide a kind of a basis, an organizational basis, Mm -hmm. on which uh, multi-ethnic alliances can flourish, and then one or the other of these alliances will come to power, and then you have an inclusionary regime. And Mm -hmm. the second factor is the capacity of the government, of the central state, to provide public goods mm-hmm. across the territory of a country. So if they have this capacity, they don't have to limit public goods provisions to their own people. So they can offer public goods, schools, roads, mm-hmm. infrastructure, security, basic stuff across the territory and therefore gain the loyalty and knit alliances that are multi-ethnic in nature mm. as well, which in turn then again, produces more uh, inclusionary ruling Mm -hmm. coalitions. And the third factor is the ability to communicate with each other, Mm -hmm. either in a shared language or, Mm -hmm. um, that's one of the cases I look at in this book, through a shared script, as in China. Mm -hmm. And so a shared language or a shared script uh, reduces the the costs to establish political alliances. It makes Mm -hmm. it easier to trust each other, to, talk, to uh, negotiate an, mm-hmm. an agreement and so on. And this in turn then, um, again, has the tendency to produce more multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multilinguistic, and so on coalitions, okay. and correspondingly also more inclusionary governments. Okay. Well, let's talk more fine grain on, on some of these issues. In an essay you wrote in Foreign Affairs, you wrote about the nuances of patriotism and nationalism, and you state, the popular distinction between patriotism and nationalism echoes one made by scholars who contrast civic nationalism, according to which all citizens, regardless of their cultural background, count as members of the nation with ethnic nationalism, in which ancestry and language determine national identity. And so you go on to say, yet, efforts to draw a hard line between good civic patriotism and bad ethnic nationalism overlook the common roots of both. Patriotism is a form of nationalism, you argue. They are ideological brothers, not distant cousins. Are you saying here, Andreas, that nationalism and patriotism are two sides of the same coin? Yeah, kind of. You know, in the current 
political debate, especially in the U.S., but in other English-speaking countries as well, the distinction between nationalism and patriotism has become Mm -hmm. deeply entrenched. Uh, Nationalism now is associated with white nationalism, Mm -hmm. with uh, ultra-right populism, Mm -hmm. and uh, patriotism is then seen as a counterforce uh, to that. And it's important to know that this distinction is relatively new, mm-hmm. and it's only after the Second World War and the experience with fascism mm-hmm. that nationalism became associated with the right, and that the term becomes kind of almost like pejorative, at least in the eyes of liberals. Hmm. Before that, I mean, we can just briefly run through the history of nationalism to mm-hmm. see mm-hmm. how new and um, maybe also, in a way, misleading these association with nationalism and racism and white nationalism and so on right. actually is. Uh, in the 19th century, nationalism was associated with liberalism, with classic liberalism, the fight uh, for democracy, mm-hmm. the fight for equal rights, the principles of constitutional order built mm-hmm. on a legal uh, framework. And then... After that, nationalism became associated also with communism and many of the anti-colonial struggles mm-hmm. in Vietnam and other parts of the world. Right. There were nationalist, anti-imperial struggles. They were led by communist parties in China and Vietnam and in many, many other parts of the developing world. Mm-hmm. So nationalism then had made an alliance, as it were, with the communist left. and. And I could go on and on. So mm-hmm. nationalism is an ideology that is relatively poorly elaborated. You know, the like or like principle is not really richly defined. And so that's why it can um, be fused with all kinds of other political ideologies. Mm-hmm. So what, what is then your definition of nationalism? Well, nationalism demands two things. One is national self-determination. That's Mm -hmm. the like-over-like principle. So Americans should not be ruled by Mexicans or Mm -hmm. Canadians Mm -hmm. or the other way around. Mm -hmm. And the second is that the rulers, uh, political elites, should govern in the name of, but also in the interests, looking out for the interests of the majority of the population, Mm. rather than their own interests Mm -hmm. or global interests such as human rights or uh, global economic stability, and not in the interest of a dynastic family, Mm -hmm. as in uh, dynastic states and so on. And so these are the two of the key principles of nationalist ideologies. Mm -hmm. And you can easily see how these two principles can merge with ideas that come from the left or from the right. So if you look at the contemporary political debates in the U.S., you can see that a lot of, for example, Warren's, Mm -hmm. presidential candidate Warren's uh, proposals are actually deeply nationalist. She even asks for... She asked for manipulating the exchange rate of the dollar so that in the interests of the working classes in mm-hmm. the United States, I mean, that's a massively economic nationalist proposal. Mm-hmm. And you can see, you know, nationalist rhetorics on the right, obviously, as well. There it's more obvious, and mm-hmm. and Trump and others even embrace the term nationalism and mm-hmm. use it to define their own position. You think that's um, a misuse of the term? Or? Not really, mm-hmm. as long as others 
are aware of that this is not the only uh, nationalist position okay. that one can actually take. So there's a, it makes me uneasy. You know, there's a disjuncture between mm-hmm. how social scientists who mm-hmm. have studied nationalism for a long time, like myself, mm-hmm. use the term, mm-hmm. um, and how in the public debate the term right. is identified. And this juncture makes it a little bit hard sometimes to communicate to a larger public. Yeah. So it's interesting, given your background as a social scientist who have deep knowledge and understanding of the history of nationalism throughout the world and over time, what do you make of the rise of nationalism globally today, particularly in the United States as well as in Europe? Well, the first thing that one has to emphasize is that nationalism is also deeply embedded mm-hmm. in the structures of modern states. Mm-hmm. So you have national social security, mm-hmm. you have institutionalized solidarity between members of the nation, between citizens who are perfect strangers to each other and yet are called upon to support each other in times of uh, unemployment, old age, and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. You have national defense forces, so the whole um, military is organized around the idea of the nation and national solidarity, and so on and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. So um, nationalism is so deeply embedded that it is always there to mm-hmm. be uh, revitalized to mm-hmm. be remobilized. Mm-hmm. So the question is, when does that happen? When do explicitly nationalist uh, movements emerge again? And I think one could argue that when the two basic principles of nationalist ideologies are violated, then there is a potential for a movement who reclaims these or wants to put the world back in order emerge and. So if political sovereignty is transferred away from the nation state, for example, to the level of the European Union, it's easy to portray this as a violation of the like-over-like principle Mm -hmm. of nationalism. These people, the Eurocrats in Brussels, they decide on our Mm -hmm. daily lives. For example, they decided to have free labor movement, basically tear down the borders Mm -hmm. uh, in this vast space of Europe. So all of a sudden, people have to compete with Eastern Europeans, and so on and so on, on the local labor market. Mm-hmm. And second, if political elites seem or actually do rule not with an eye on the interests of the majority of the population, mm-hmm. but global interests such as global economic growth, mm-hmm. human rights, and things like that, mm-hmm. And if the living standards as a consequence of vast majority of the population stagnate mm-hmm. because they actually uh, have all of a sudden to compete either with immigrants domestically or with foreign workers abroad mm-hmm. as a consequence of global economic integration, mm-hmm. then it's relatively easy to portray this situation mm-hmm. both with left or right-wing rhetorics mm-hmm. as a sellout. Hmm. are the interests of the nation to global elites, to global interests, to a vague um, liberal principle of human rights and so on. Hmm. So I don't find it surprising at all that we are in this moment of resurgent nationalism. And I'm surprised that everybody's surprised because (laughs) there were previous waves of Uh um, nationalist mobilization that uh, responded to very similar structural conditions. Even in the U.S.? Well, in the U.S., you could say that in the 20s and the 30s, mm-hmm. you, you did have, uh, you know, a nativist right. uh, mobilization, and you had policies that then were 
actually quite nationalist in content mm-hmm. uh, in the substance of what they propose. So it's not the first time that we have mm-hmm. nativism and things mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. in the U.S. So, of course, these structural conditions, they also then need leadership. So you need somebody who can mobilize his discontent, mm-hmm. uh, give it a nationalist framing, mm-hmm. and so on and so on. And then you have diffusion effects. You know, one leader learns from the other what kind of rhetorics work. and. Mm-hmm. You can see that now how certain tropes from the nationalist right are mm-hmm. traveling around the world, right. deep state and all, you know, conspiracy type of mm-hmm. theories are associated with the nationalist right, um, with anti-elite rhetorics and so on. They're spreading throughout the world very quickly. So we have these kinds of things, um, diffusion effects as well, but I think the underlying structural driving forces are actually relatively clear. Diffusion means that um, two similar items, for example, two similar policies um, appear in two different countries, not because domestic conditions were similar, giving rise to a similar response, a similar policy, but because one country learned from the other, one country imitates the other. A similarity, then, is the result of such imitation and learning processes and not similar structural conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you talked about nationalism and how it's deeply embedded within societies, but there is a a counter narrative to this worldview or scholarly view. What about the role of ethnic or racial difference or diversity? Uh, You have argued that ethnic diversity should not be used as a causal factor in conflict research, a perspective that runs counter in the field. So can you explain why ethnicity matters less in political conflict than many may assume? Yeah. So by the time I started to write about how political exclusion along ethnic lines Mm -hmm. drives conflict, Mm -hmm. there was the mainstream, that's mostly political science research, and some of my research is also published in uh, political science journals. The mainstream idea was that all of these uh, factors, such as ethno-political exclusion, grievances, and so on, injustice, mm-hmm. uh, had nothing to do with civil war, and that civil war um, was basically a matter of the capacity of a state to suppress rebellion, so a, a matter of the repressive capacity of a regime, or alternatively, um, uh, whether there were resources around, uh, such as diamonds and so on, that attracted basically conflict. And according to that view, ethnicity actually doesn't matter whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And the way that these authors in that line of research try to show that is by they used a simple measurement of ethnic diversity, how many mm-hmm. language groups, how many religious groups you have in a country. Mm-hmm. And they showed that this is not actually associated with the probability of having a civil war. And I agree with that. But I think, and we show uh, empirically, that what does matter is not diversity per se, Mm -hmm. but whether you have political inequality along ethnic or racial lines. And so two countries that are perfectly uh, similar in terms of the demographic makeup, Mm -hmm. how many minorities you have and so on, in one you might have a small minority uh, ruling the whole country, mm-hmm. such as in South Africa under apartheid, or, right. in, 
or in contemporary Syria, where the Alawi are uh, 10% of the population but control the entire government, the entire security apparatus, the army, and so on. Mm-hmm. So you have a country like that where civil war is almost inevitable or the probability is very high, and you have a similar uh, country, similarly sized minority uh, groups and so on, but where the majority and minorities are represented in national level government, mm-hmm. and you will have peace in that kind of country. So what matters is not diversity, it's not demography mm-hmm. that matters, but it's political power structures and how they are or are not associated with ethnic and racial diversity. Okay, well, let's look at some particular cases, Andreas. So. Let's see if we can find an exception. <laughs> oh, Perhaps. I'm sure you can. <laughs> uh, how do you think your arguments uh, would hold up in current ethnic secession movements, such as in Catalonia? This is a group of Spaniards who want to secede from the nation state and form their own because of their perceived ethnic difference. They have their own language, cuisine, literature. Um, so how does your case hold up there? Yes. Um, I'm glad you bring these examples, because there's <laughs> some others that are much more tricky. Oh, wow. Well, uh, please share. <laughs> <laughs> so in Catalonia, uh, Catalonia has a history of being sidelined by the mm-hmm. central government mm-hmm. um, under Franco, right. where uh, under the fascist dictator, um, Catalonia was associated rightly with uh, the left. And uh, Now, before you go in, could you remind our listeners who was Franco? Franco was a dictator, a fascist dictator that ruled from the 30 on until his death in 76 right. uh, or something. And so during these long decades, uh, mm-hmm. Catalonia was actually politically, you could say, oppressed. Mm-hmm. And Catalan-speaking uh, elites were sidelined. Mm-hmm. So after his death, during the political reform, things became better. Civil liberties were reestablished and so on and so on, and there was some devolution of power to Catalonia. But the national government continued to be largely controlled by Castilians, meaning by uh, mainstream uh, mm-hmm. Spanish people. And uh, you have very, very few Catalan uh, governors in central-level government. Mm-hmm. And Catalan nationalists would argue, that's beyond you know my knowledge, they would argue that the ones that actually did serve the mm-hmm. Catalan origin ministers and so on, that they were basically figureheads, uh, had no real power, did not effectively represent the interests of the Catalan-speaking population and so on. Mm-hmm. And so in that situation of, it's a relatively mild form, let's not you know, compare it just to Syria, but okay, it's a, right. it's a much milder form. But you still have some political disadvantage and exclusion from the center, mm-hmm. from the point of view of Catalonia. And now, unfortunately, with recent developments, now you have a situation where police officers from the highland, from the mm-hmm. from Madrid, are sent to Catalonia. Mm-hmm. There's some indiscriminate repression mm-hmm. against uh, Catalan nationalists that's happening mm-hmm. that will only further the flames of Catalan nationalism. And all you need in the current situation is a bunch of young men who get some Kalashnikov somewhere and go underground, and then you have a real problem. And mm-hmm. I'm very pessimistic about, oh, really? about the situation there. And I think the central government... Uh, 
makes uh, has made some very big mistakes in how to, to handle the situation. Power sharing at the center should be what they do rather than sending police officers um, to quell the unrest. So let's get in some real politics here. So you have the distinct privilege of being the chair of the faculty-run Policy and Planning Committee at Columbia. Mm. No more commonly at Columbia as the PPC. The PPC is the only body elected to represent the Faculty of Arts and Sciences to the university leadership, as you know. Each division in the School of Arts and Society has its own representatives on the PPC. Natural scientists, humanists, and, of course, social scientists. Given your career-long research in the matters of conflict war identity, <laughs> how has your research helped you guide the work of the PPC? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fun. Um, I never thought about my research being relevant for this work uh-huh. uh, in any way whatsoever. <laughs> so let me think about that a little bit. Well, I do think, mm-hmm. okay, so we're now speculating, right. uh, just having fun, okay? Mm-hmm. I do think that the equal representation of the different divisions on this body mm-hmm. and the principle of rotating chairman slash womanship mm-hmm. um, is actually a good thing, mm-hmm. Uh According to my theory, it should keep the peace okay. uh, between the divisions. <laughs> okay. I do think, I mean, if you imagine a different scenario where the PPC would be exclusively social scientists mm-hmm. and headed by social scientists, I mean, mm-hmm. you could predict that this would lead to some kind of unrest and discontent. Right. Right. So the principle of representation mm-hmm. and power sharing works maybe for academic institutions like that, as well as for countries as a whole. Right. So it works. It's almost like Switzerland, right? <laughs> right. We're all deep Colombians <laughs> right? in many ways. So. Right. Yes. So, so this has been wonderful, Andreas. Thanks for coming through the Dean's Table. Thank you very much. The Dean's Table is produced by Ursula Sommer with production assistance from Jack Riley. Our technical engineers are A.J. Mangone and Ariana Sullivan. Our researchers are Emma Flaherty and Angeline Lee. Our logo is by Jessica Lillian. Our music is by Imperial. I'm Dean Harris. <laughs>